All right, so this week we are going to be starting Malachi chapter 1. Malachi chapter 1. Um, two weeks ago, I introduced the book of Malachi to you all by giving you just a quick survey about who, who, the what, the when, the where, and the why of this book. Well, this morning we're going to start digging into the very first chapter. My, more, my hope this morning is that you'll have a better understanding of God's love for his people, the Hebrew nation, and his love for us as believers. We're also going to see how his rebuke of the Levitical priest can, is or can be uh, spiritually applied to us as Christians as well. You know, some of you guys may look at this final book in the Old Testament, Malachi, and say, what can this book, how can this book speak to me? This book was written thousands of years ago. And what does it have to say to me? And again, I believe that as we go through, even just this week, as we go through the first chapter, you're going to be seeing that there are certain things that were happening here in the context of, of what was going on here in Malachi's day and maybe what's going on now in our world in, in, in Christianity, maybe in your own lives. But um, this, this book definitely has a lot of application for our lives. You're also going to see how much God loves you and that he wants you to freely offer him the best, the very best of you and of all that you have. Thus, I tell this morning's message, his love, your best. So before we get into God's word, let's open up with a word of prayer. Lord, Heavenly Father, um, we come before you this morning in thankfulness, in joy, and just full of love for you, Lord. I know we're just a small group here today, but you've said in your word where two or three are gathered together. There you are, Lord, and we believe that, we trust that, and we have faith that right now you're here with us in our midst, Lord. And so we ask right now that you examine us, examine our hearts, empty us from outside distraction, empty us from things that are burdening us right now, Lord, and let us focus on you, on your word, and what you have to say. We need to hear from you because your words are the words of life. Your words sustain us. Fill us with your love, your Holy Spirit, Lord. Thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. Before I, for, before I actually start reading the first five verses of this, of, of uh, Malachi chapter 1, um, I want to remind you of a few things that I, I mentioned a couple weeks ago and that we're going to see um, or what's going on when this book was written. Malachi's prophetic words to the exiles occurred some 100 years after their initial return and possibly after the days of Zechariah and Haggai. There are several passages in the book that are, indicate that in Malachi's day, the temple was already rebuilt and the Jews were under their last civil ruler, which was Nehemiah. There are also passages in here revealing that the sins of Malachi, that, that Malachi rebuked, were the same sins that Nehemiah rebuked. For example, the defilement of the priesthood, the corruption of marriage, and the ignoring of the regulations regarding tithes that were supposed to go to the Levites. So in spite of the fact that the temple had been rebuilt and the sacrifice and feast had resumed, the prophetic promises made by Haggai and Zechariah hadn't been fulfilled yet. This left the nation discouraged. They were waiting. So Haggai and Zechariah had made these prophetic words and they were waiting for them to be fulfilled. And by Malachi's time, it hadn't been, they hadn't been fulfilled. And so can you imagine again being given these promises? And time goes by, a day, a week, a month, years, and they still haven't been fulfilled. And so you can probably understand what they were feeling, what was going on with them. 
This left again the nation discouraged and disappointed in what they thought were broken promises and led them towards, it started leading them towards a low regard of God. Again, imagine if you're being told by someone you care about, I promise you this, I promise you that, and it's not being done as, as you want it to be done or right away. I'm sure that in your mind, you start, your regard for that person start to get lowered and lowered and lowered until you're just like, you know what? Keep your promises. So Israel, the nation, needed an assurance of God's love and a challenge to their disobedience. And it was at this point that Malachi stepped in with these words that God gave him. So let's read the first five verses of Malachi chapter 1. Malachi chapter 1, verse 1. The Word of God says, A pronouncement, the Word of the Lord to Israel through Malachi. I have loved you, says the Lord. Yet you ask, how have you loved us? Was it Esau's Jacob's brother? This is the Lord's declaration. Even so, I loved Jacob. But I hated Esau. I churned his mountains into a wasteland and gave his inheritance to the desert jackals. Though Edom says, we have been devastated, but we will rebuild the ruins. The Lord of armies says this, they may rebuild, but I will demolish. They will be called a wicked country and the, and the people of the Lord, sorry, and the people the Lord has cursed forever. Your own eyes will see this, and you yourselves will say, The Lord is great even beyond the borders of Israel. The opening paragraph of Malachi functions as an introduction to the entire book. It establishes the theme of God's love for Israel. In the rest of the book, God will direct Israel how to live in light of that love. The very first verse identifies the aspects of this book, what it is, whom it's from, and whom it's to, a pronouncement. The word of the Lord to Israel through Malachi. Back in those days, God used prophets like alert messages we'd see or hear on the TV, on the radio, or maybe some of your electronic devices. And you guys have heard them. You guys are watching TV, and all of a sudden you hear that, me, me, me. Or you're on your phone, and it's a quiet evening or a quiet, you're at the movie theater, and everyone's phone just starts blasting with that sound. Well, this was similar to that. This was God using Malachi to speak an important word to the nation. He wanted all of them to know this, so he chose Malachi to speak these words. It was an important message that needed to be said and needed to be heard. We then see the Lord go on to make certain charges against the people and the people replying with strong denials. God says this and they're like, nah, how? What do you mean? What are you talking about? Well, first, the Lord pleads his love for them and they ask him to prove it. How? How have you loved us? He does so by reminding them of his love for Jacob, from whom they were descendants of, and his rejection of Esau, and his judgments on Esau's descendants, which later became the Edomites. Then the eyes of the pe- then, he's, then he reminds them or tells them the eyes of the people of Israel would see the desolation, the destruction of Edom. And they would acknowledge, they would finally acknowledge the greatness of God. These first five verses show us that the issue with Judah wasn't that they didn't believe in God. Rather, it was that they doubted the love of God. Have you guys ever been there? Have you ever guys ever, yes, I believe in God, but I'm not sure if I believe that he really loves me. I'm doubting whether he really cares about me. Look at my life. Look at what's going on around me. Does he love me? 
those doubts started creeping in. Again, by disputing God's love, they, the nation, exposed how much they'd allowed the life's trials to blind them to faithfulness and loving presence. Such spiritual depletion was at the root of not only Israel's insulting religious rites, but also the moral decay and spiritual indifference that Malachi described. And how much of that do we see in today's Christianity, in today's churches, where there is no true reverence, there is no true worship, there is no true heart of God? When life gets rough, I think everyone has experienced those rough patches in life. Or you find yourself in a spiritual valley or a spiritual desert. You must not, you must be careful not to fall into that mind trap of doubting God's love for you. Like Judah, doubting God's love will only lead you to love him less and may cause you to eventually walk away, to abandon him. Again, to say, you know what? You say you love me, but you don't show me. And again, he does, he, he is, but you're just not seeing it. And so for you, because it's not your way, it's easier for you just to walk away. During those moments when God seems far and nothing seems to be going right, it's important, it's vital that you remind yourselves of these undeniable truths. First, during those times when things aren't going right, when it's rough, life is rough, remind yourselves of these words. I have loved you, says the Lord. How? You may also ask. You may ask as well. Well, he gave up what was most precious to him so that you wouldn't have to suffer the eternal consequences of sins, of your sins. Everybody here is a sinner. Everybody here has failed. Everybody here has fallen short. The Bible shows us that, reveals that, that we're not perfect, that we're fallible, that we're, we, we make mistakes. And because of that, it's alienated us from the Lord. But God sent a perfect solution, a perfect... There's no other way to describe it. He couldn't have done it any better. He sent His one and only Son to come and die for us, to cleanse us from all sin, so that finally you might have that reconciliation that, uh, that we were seeking for, that, you wa- that, that He wanted too. He wants to have that relationship with you. But again, He gave up what was most precious to Him so that you wouldn't have to suffer. First John 4 Verses 9 through 10 says, God's love was revealed among us in this way. God sent his one and only son into the world so that we might live through him. God's or love consists in this, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the atoning sacrifice for our sins. Remember, I have loved you, says the Lord. Second, remind yourselves that God's grace is what saved you, is that you're saved by God's grace. You're not saved because of anything you did or who you know or how much money you paid. You're saved because God lovingly extended his love and you accepted it. You said yes. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 through 9 says, You, for you're saved by grace through faith, and this is not from yourselves. It's God's gift, not from works, so that no one can boast. And in John chapter 1, verses 12 and 13, also says, But to all who did receive him, he gave them the right to be children of God. To those who believe in his name, who were born not of natural descent, 
or of the will of the flesh, or of the will of man, but of God. Remind yourselves of God's grace. Third, remind yourselves of how much of how much God loves you or has blessed you, the goodness of God, and how much He's protected you. Think back, for those of us that have lived a while, think of all those times the Lord showed His goodness to you personally. Those times, those situations where you were like, Lord, I know this is from you. And I love you and thank you so much. Think about those moments where everything seemed impossible. It couldn't go your way. But somehow the Lord blessed you. And you knew it was the Lord. You knew it wasn't coincidence. You knew that it was the Lord. Think about those moments. And also, I know this is true in my life. Think about all those times he protected you from harm. Think about all those times that your life could have ended. That could have been it. But he watched over you. He protected you with his mighty hand. It wasn't time for you to be with him yet. He still had a plan and purpose for you. James 1.17 reminds us every good and perfect gift. Let me say that again. Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, who does not change like shifting shadows. God has blessed us in more than one way. I'm sure that you know that. Keep that in mind. Never forget that. Keep remind yourselves during those hard times. And fourth, remind yourselves that the trials you experience individually or maybe even together as a church that we may experience are also opportunities to glorify God before a watching world. That's how Paul viewed his imprisonment and possible death in Rome. And that's the way we must look at the testing that God sends us. Yes, sometimes God will test us just to see where we're at in our faith, to see if everything we've heard, if everything we've read, if it's sinking in, to see if we really understand what we're reading, what we're studying. So he will send things just to see where you're at. You may fall, you may not pass, but you know what? He just, he, all he wants you to do is get back up. And start walking with him. Not be down, stay down, but to continue just to keep walking and asking the Lord to keep showing you, giving you, strengthening you, giving you the wisdom, the knowledge to, to just learn these things. And the next time it happens, again, you might, he might, you might be able to overcome and be, come out victorious from that trial. But again, he gives you these things. He gives you these trials just for you. It's for your benefit. Don't ever forget that. Every difficulty is an opportunity to demonstrate to others what the Lord can do for those who put their trust in Him. My friends, church, God has loved you, is loving you, and will forever love you. He's proved it and will continue to prove it if you just continue to hold on, if you continue to remain faithful and obedient. I know it's hard sometimes. I know we just want to give up. We just want to walk away. Just hold on. Hold on. Don't give up. I don't believe that just for a minute, for I don't believe a minute just because he's quiet that he's left you. Sometimes his quietness means he's just watching you to see again if you learned what he's taught you so far. I used to play this trick when my boys, I don't play it that much with Bella because 
I worry a little bit more about her. But um, I used to play this trick with my, with my kids, and maybe you have too. We would be at a department store or at, at the mall or whatever, and they'd be looking at shoes or looking at clothes, and, and they'd be all distracted and looking at the stuff, and I'd duck away. I just would sneak away and, and just go outside the store, and, and they would, all of a sudden they'd look up and I'm not there. I just look out, look through the window, cracking up because they're just like, you know, like, where did he go? Where did he, where's he at? Where's he? Like, he's laughing because he knows what I'm talking about. He's like, and then that, and then finally they go outside and they look the opposite direction from where I'm at and they're like looking. And then they finally turn around and see me and I'm just like laughing. I'm just like, I'm here. I'm not going to leave you. Don't worry. And maybe that's why, again, my oldest son, sometimes he jokes, he jokes around and says he has abandonment issues. But, um, <laughs> <laughs> um, but again, I'm always there. I'm always, I've never left their side. I'm always watching them to see what they're going to do. But it's interesting now that they're older because I'll disappear and like, ah, I know he'll, he's out there somewhere. He's going to show up. You know, I'm not going to fall for it. Well, that's how our, our relationship, that's what he does, the Lord does sometimes. He'll step away, look out, and just watch you. You, and as you look up, you're like, where's he at? Where's he at? I don't see him. I don't see you. Well, he wants to see where you're at. He wants to see what you're going to do. And he wants to see if you're just, if you're just, if you're going to absolutely know that, you know, he's going to show up. I'm being, having that, have that confidence that he is there watching you. So where are you at? Again, what are you, are you going to freak out? And if you are, that's, that's fine. Again, he's going to pop up, and you're going to see him, and you're going to be like, okay, there you are. But are you at your place in your Christianity where you're like, yeah, I know he's going to be there. This trial is, is going to pass, and he's with me, and he just wants to see where I'm at. Warren Wiersbe again said this, when it seems as if God is far away, Remind yourself that he's near. Nearness is not a matter of geography. God is everywhere. Nearness is likeness. The more we become like the, like the Lord, the nearer he is to us. And remember, never doubt God's love. In Romans chapter 8, verses 38 and 39, Paul tells us, For I am persuaded that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Don't doubt it, but when you do, remind yourselves of these things I mentioned. Well, with the keynote idea that God still loves Israel that has been established, the prophet now turns to the body of the message, namely a series of disputations demonstrating that Israel's, demonstrating Israel's unfaithfulness despite that love. Covering all of Israelite society, the message reminds readers that God's love should motivate covenantal Loyalty. In the following verses we're about to read, the first group Malachi addresses was the failed priesthood. So follow along as I read the rest of chapter 1. Malachi chapter 1, verse 6. A son honors his father, and a servant his master. But I am a father. Where is my honor? And if I am a master, where is your fear of me, says the Lord of armies, to, to you priests who despise me or despise my name? Yet you ask, how have we despised your name? By presenting defiled food on my altar. How have we defiled you, you ask, when you say the Lord's table is contemptible? When you present a blind animal for sacrifice, is it not wrong? And when you present a lame or sick animal, 
Is it not wrong? Bring it to your governor. Would he be pleased? Would he be pleased with you or show you favor? Asked the Lord of armies. And now plead for God's favor while he be gracious to us. Since this has come from your hands, will he show any of you favor? Asked the Lord of armies. I wish one of you would shut the temple doors so that you would no longer kindle a useless fire on my altar. I am not pleased with you, says the Lord of armies, and I will accept no offering from your hands. My name will be great among nations. From the rising of the sun to its setting, incense and pure offerings will be presented in my name in every place because my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord of armies. But you are profaning it when you say the Lord's table is defiled and its product, its food is, con- is contemptible. You also say, look, what a nuisance. You scorn it, says the Lord of armies. You bring stolen, lame, or sick animals. You bring this as an offering. Am I to accept this from your, accept that from your hands? Asked the Lord. The deceiver is cursed, who has an acceptable male in his flock and makes a vow, but sacrifices a defective animal to the Lord. For I am a great king, says the Lord of armies, and my name will be feared among the nations malachi now addresses the issue of sacrifice which should be a loving response to love received but instead has degenerated into something else once again entering a disputation god charges the priest with dishonoring him he tells the priest that they were failing to live up to the basic standards of human relationship wherein a son honors his father and a servant his master. Instead, Israel's priest despised. They simply despised God's name, meaning they showed contempt. They showed contempt for God's character and his person. The Hebrew word translated despise means to accord little worth or to show utter contempt. It was used to describe, to describe the rejection of the Messiah in Isaiah 49.7 and in, 53, verse, in chapter 53, verse 3. Nevertheless, what did the priests do when God is charging them of this? They pretended, they pretended to be ignorant by asking, How? How have we despised you? How have we despised your name? Well, in verse 7 and the first part of verse 8, the Lord presented his proof by presenting defiled food on my altar, by allowing imperfect animals, the blind, the lame, the sick, to be sacrificed. They were blatantly disobeying the law in Deuteronomy 15:21 and acting contemptibly towards the Lord. Imagine again if the Lord asked you over for dinner and you brought him, instead of bringing him the best steak that you have or the best food that you have and cooking him the best meal, the best pie, you buy store-bought pie. Not that there's nothing wrong with that, but, you know, you just, it's not made from you. Or you give him that moldy cheesecake that you have in the back of the fridge or that pasta that you have back there that no one's eaten in several weeks. What? Do you, how do, you, do you think he would receive that? Do you think he would be pleased with it? But yet, you will see someone important. Let's say your favorite senator, your favorite president, your favorite actor, actress, your singer, your, your musical artist invites you over, tells you to bring some food. I'm sure you're going to bring the best of what you have. And this was the Lord is describing. These were the priests. The priests were doing this. They were giving the governors and all these important people the best of their foods, but they were giving God the leftovers, the scraps, the moldy food. 
the, the, the sacrifices, the animals that were blind, lame, and sick. The Lord then gave them four ways that the priest, again, were acting contemptibly in verses 8 through 14. First, they failed to understand God's standard of excellence. He tells them, bring that food that you offer to me, bring it to your governor and see what he thinks. Bring that moldy, crusty food, that, all those lame animals, those sick animals, bring it to your governor and see what he says. The Lord knew they wouldn't because the governor wouldn't receive them. And he, he may even execute them for offering him that kind of food. Yet, they had the audacity to offer imperfect sacrifices to the Lord of the universe whose perfection, glory, and standards were infinitely, are infinitely higher. These sacrifices could not be used to obtain God's favor or cause him to be gracious. God says, and he says here in, in these verses, would rather have someone shut the doors of the temple or shut the temple doors rather than have the priest kindle a useless fire on his altar. Second, Israel's priests believed they needed, or Israel's belie- believed that God needed Israel to worship him. The Lord reminded the priest that one day, from the rising sun, <coughs> even to its setting, God's name would be great among the nations of the whole entire world. God doesn't need your worship. He doesn't need it. He wants you to freely offer it and give it to him. He wants you to say, Lord, here's my heart. Here's my mind. Here's everything. He wants you to offer your sacrifices to him freely. He doesn't want to say, you know what, That's, I want that. Give that to me. I need that. No, he wants you to give it up. Because he knows that those things aren't good for you. He knows that those things are keeping you from growing as a Christian, from growing as a believer, from getting closer to him. So I ask each and every one of you, what are those things? What are those things in your own life that you're unwilling to give up? That you're like, if I give this to the Lord, that's it. My life is over. I can't, I don't know what I'm going to do. It's like the last piece of my individuality that makes me special, that makes me a person. What? What are you going to, like, why aren't you giving it up? Why wouldn't you? Those are some of the things, again, he wants to, those are some of the things that are keeping you from having that closeness. I know that my relationship with the Lord is so great. He's, he's showed, revealed so much to me already that if there was anything, anything getting in the way between my growth and my relationship with him, I'd want it out of the way. And it's just not with stuff. It's with people too. Who are those people in your life that are getting in the way? That are keeping you from drawing near to God? It may be a friend. It may be a relationship. But whoever it is, are they really worth it? Are they really worth not having that closeness with God. He wants to show you so much. And He wants to do so many great things in your life if you just allow Him. (coughs) Third, the priests failed to understand the great privilege of worship. They were profaning God's name, testing it as if it were were common or ordinary. By causing the Lord's table to be defiled. Or another, or a better word, better yet, uh, that would describe uh, defiled, it was they, they allowed it to be desecrated. Also, they sniffed at the tiresome nature of worship. Oh, worship? Oh, man, I gotta do that again. Oh, worship. Man, I don't 
do that. Can the songs hurry up, please? They were treating the reverence of God as a nuisance instead of recognizing that it was a privilege. Worshiping God is a privilege. Can't tell you that how many times I'm just there in worship and I'm in thankfulness because I, I could be worshiping the world. I could be worshiping the the alcohol I used to drink and uh, the women I used to be with. And but no, I'm the Lord is allowing me to worship Him. And for me, that is just so special. And I hope that it is for you too. I hope that it just means something to you when you're worshiping the Lord. He's not some fairy tale. He's not a ghost up there in heaven. He's real. And when you come to him and worship, it ought to be with a pure heart, with everything that you have. It's a privilege. So if you're coming to worship, and you're like, ah, you know what, I don't like that song. It's too, need to, it needs to hurry up. And then just, come on, can we just get this over with? Even studying the Bible is an act of worship. If you're just hurrying, you just want that to hurry up, and you're basically treating it the same way the priests were treating the sacrifices in the temple. They found it as a nuisance. They found it as a nuisance found it tiring. And so there was no reverence. There was no true reverence of God. So what does the Lord do? He asks them, am I to accept that from your hands? Am I to accept that worship from your hands? Finally, the priest tried to swindle God. First, they gave sacrifices that were stolen. They were giving him stolen sacrifices. And this is what, it, this is what the, the passage describes. It's, it's, it would be like a bank robber, robber giving a tithe of the stolen money. Again, God couldn't accept this. Second, they kept, again, as I mentioned, they, they kept the acceptable male animal that they had previously vowed to give as a sacrifice instead offering a defective animal to the Lord. Sad. Sad, sad, sad. My kids or someone gave me, uh, again, a defective gift rather, you know, than a brand new one. I would be heartbroken. I'd be like, what the heck? Why are you giving me this broken phone? Why are you giving me this, you know, this broken, beat-down car? You know, you said you were going to give me a, a good new, brand new car and you gave me a, a lemon. I'm not going to take it. Again, but that's what they were doing. They were stealing for God, from God. But they could not, again, fool God. He's a great king who demanded the priest of Israel uh, should fear, fear him. Um, even as the end of days all the nations would. Church, again, you and I may not be Levitical priests, but according to 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9, we become royal priests when he comes and makes his home in us. And we give him the best of what we have. And, and when we give him the best of what we have and who we are and are worshiping him with an undivided heart, we're acting as priests. So let me ask you, let me ask all of you, how are you coming to God Almighty when you offer your sacrifices and when you're worshiping Him? Here, again, I'll try to go through these as briefly as possible. Here are a list of questions I want you to personally answer. Do you understand God's standard of excellence by giving Him the best of what you've got? When you see God in this perspective, you're not going to offer him anything, anything but the best. Do you sometimes make the mistake that God needs you to worship him? 
Well, as I mentioned, if you do, sorry to break the news to you. He doesn't. He doesn't need your worship. He wants you to worship him freely and without compulsion. If all humanity stopped worshiping God, everything else would worship him. When Jesus was entering Jerusalem on Palm Sunday, the crowds and the disciples were praising God. Just picture that scene in your head. I'm sure you've heard that story since you were a kid. Palm Sunday, crowds are praising God, yelling, screaming. Jesus is riding into, the, into Jerusalem with a donkey. And what do the Pharisees do, the religious leaders do? They tell Jesus, hey, rebuke your disciples. Tell them not to say those things. And here's what Jesus said in Luke 19, verses 37 and 40. Or here's briefly what he said. I tell you, if they kept silent, the stones, the stones would cry out. Crazy thought. Even if the entire world is quiet, the stones would cry out in worship. Wow. Another question to ask yourself, do you understand the privilege of worship? Our passage tells us that the priests in Malachi's day were taking worship for granted, seeing it as a nuisance and offering him stolen, lame, or sick animals. So if God was truly to see your offerings and your sacrifices, would he see the best or would he see the scraps, the leftovers? brothers and sisters. God deserves the best of us, from us, because he's given the best of him. He's given the best he could offer his son, Jesus Christ. What does it say about your attitude about God if you're not worshiping him with all your heart and with all your mind? And what are you telling him when you're asking him to give up that one thing that's keeping you from growing but you're, instead you say, no, I'm not going to give that up. You can have this instead. I'll give you this. It's not the same thing. It's, it's defective. But I'm going to give that to you instead. What, do you, what does that say about your worship, about your sacrifice? You think, he, again, he would accept it. Don't take the privilege of worship lightly. We sometimes make the mistake of getting too friendly, too chummy. Jesus is my buddy. Jesus is my friend. Like, in the sense that, you know, you guys are bros and can hang out and you guys have this cool understanding. We make the mistake of getting too, chum, too chummy with God. Or try, being, or try bringing him down to our level. Yes, he's a friend. He's a friend indeed. But an almighty friend an almighty and glorious friend, a holy friend that needs to be revered, needs to be feared and respected. Final question. Are you attempting to rob God? Are you attempting to rob, cheat, or swindle God? Have you made promises or oaths to God and have broken them because, well, He's God. He's gonna, I'm saved. He's going to forgive me anyways. You know, I, I'm going to make these promises, but, you know, I'm, he's an understanding God. He knows me. He knows I'm not going to give that up. He's going to forgive me anyways. My friends, I'm sure someone in your life has taught you this, but your word is your bond. And if you make promises, you ought to keep them. Especially the pinky promises. Keep those. Again, especially. Especially if you made them to God. What are you telling God about your honesty, your integrity, and your reverence when you don't keep your word to Him? When you're lying straight into God's face. When you're cheating Him. We are not giving him the best. We may not be punished like Ananias and Sapphira in Acts chapter 5, but he is going to hold us accountable 
for every broken promise we made to him. And he's going to do that when we see him face to face. In Deuteronomy 6.18, it says, Do not test the Lord your God. And guess what? Jesus said the same thing. He repeated those words in Luke chapter 4, verse 12. So honor him by giving him what you said you would and keeping your promises to him. As I begin to close again this, this, this message this morning, I hope that this message from this chapter, Malachi chapter 1, is clear. God loves you. He loves you, absolutely loves you, has loved you. And he wants the best of you. Is that what you're giving him? Are you giving him the best of you? At this moment, again, I want to speak to those who may be watching or listening online or anywhere on the radio or around the world. I don't know where this message is going to go to. You know, I picture, sometimes I picture in my head that someone's listening and, or watching in some remote, has Wi-Fi somewhere in some remote village in, in South America. But let me tell you this, God cares for you. He loves you and wants to have a relationship with you. He sent his son to die for you. He sent his son so that your sins may be forgiven. Are you ready to accept that? Are you ready to surrender your life to him? And if that's you, if you're watching, listening, or, or even if you just want to rededicate your life to him, Wherever you're at, just close your eyes, bow your head, and pray this with all your heart. Lord, I'm sorry. Forgive me of my sins. I've blown it, and you know that. But now I believe that you sent your one and only Son to die for me. so that I may have life. I freely accept the gift of forgiveness that you offer through your Son, through His blood that He shed on the cross. Fill me with your Spirit, Lord. Make me new. Open up my mind, my heart, and my eyes to truly see, understand, and to love you, Lord. Help me to walk forward with you from here until eternity. Help me just to not dwell on the past. Thank you for being Lord, for being my God. And thank you for making me your child now. In Jesus' name, amen. If you pray that, contact us, let us know what's what's happening, what you know, will lead you to the next steps in your walk in your Christianity. You know, it's it's a big commitment, and there are going to be ups and downs, valleys and hills, and deserts and mountains, and but the Lord will always be there. He will be there every single step of the way. Don't give up. And for those of us that are here, again, He loves you. He cares for you. He doesn't want anybody here to, to doubt how much he's, he loves you. Be careful when you do begin, when those doubts do begin to creep in into your mind, when the devil starts whispering in your ear, he doesn't love you. Does he really? Look at your life. Look at who you are. Does, do you think he really loves you? 
don't listen to the enemy. He just wants to kill and destroy. Yes, God loves you. He will continue to love you. Embrace that. Embrace him. Don't walk away from his love. Don't act like those evil Levitical priests that Malachi was talking to or that God was speaking to through Malachi. Love him. Let's pray. Lord, thank you um, for this day, for this word, this first chapter of Malachi, for what you've shown us. Lord, Lord, help us to fall more in love with you, Lord. Reveal yourself, reveal more of yourself to us, Lord. So then when we see you, and, and, and yes, Lord, just fall more and more in love with you. Help us to forsake anything that is getting in the way of that love, of that relationship. Help us to draw near to you, Lord, so that we may true again, truly see you. Forgive us for acting like the priests sometimes, like these evil priests. Give us the right heart and the right mind. Guide us with your spirit, Lord. Show everyone this week how beautiful you are and how good you are. Show them your blessings. We love you, Lord. We praise you. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.